Testing, testing, ball cast. Season nine, ep three. What up, Nier? Oh, I didn't want to get that chewing in there, but <laughs> good to get it out in the test. Oh, oh, attention, please, attention, please. <laughs> this here feels like the whole entire world collapsed. <laughs> Welcome to the Ballcast, boys and girls. Jay Riz and Nirasan back in the Intercontinental Lab, bringing you, the loyal listener, your favorite hoops podcast. Nir, it is episode three. We are cranking out the episodes this season. Almost at a once a month clip. What up, my dude? Yeah, I mean, it only took COVID uh, and a global pandemic for us to really get back into this. But uh, it's been a fun season, so I'm glad that we can get some episodes going. I, I mean, you'd always wondered if, like, there wouldn't be a lot of storylines, the drama that you'd normally get, uh, especially because it's a weird season. But if anything, I feel like there's just so much going on around the league. Yeah, this is going to be a great episode, and let's jump right into it. Let's talk Sixers raps. And it's funny because we were talking about a recording yesterday, and we we're like, you know what? Let's wait for the Sixers raps game. Sixers are on an absolute roll. Raps are playing well. But I think we both probably thought raps have nobody that can guard the Sixers, uh, nobody that can guard Embiid. And here are the Raptors somehow pulling it out. And the raps have an unbelievable ability to shut down these other teams number one players we've done it against Giannis and Bede last night had one of his worst games of the season we've done it against Harden so I've got to give credit to Nurse and the game plan for the ability to shut down these stars yeah I mean I mean before the game we texted each other and we were like who the hell is guarding Embiid and Embiid has been on an absolute heater um, of late, yeah. you know, he dropped 50 points like a couple of nights previously. Um, he, he's looking like, you know, he's fully engaged and checked in. And then you look on our side and I'm like, oh my God, Aaron Baines, we're going to have to throw up minutes with Aaron Baines. And then yeah. Chris Boucher looks like he might get, you know, completely rolled over right. by Embiid. And I mean, again, to your point, like I think credit to Nick Nurse and the coaching staff in that they, they went kind of small at times. You know, OG was in there in the mix. Um, and I often find with some of these teams where, yeah, Nick Nurse loves the gimmicky, hey, this is going to come out of nowhere. Like, I'm going to kind of surprise you. And, I mean, who knows if that works over a seven-game series. But um, the Raptors really look like, you know, they're kind of feeling their groove again. And I think at the beginning part of that season, they just looked like they were not having fun at all. Right. And you could just tell this team is kind of clicking now. And there's a little bit of that, like, let's, I think there's a little bit of the, the aftershock of what happened in the bubble. Some of these players are still kind of like processing all of that. Um, and part of it might be just, you know, getting comfortable in Tampa and, you know, feeling like the groove of the season. So uh, I was quite surprised. I, you know, this past week, was essentially my make or break week for the Raptors. Yeah. Um, you face the Bucks twice and you face the Sixers. Um, and I was just like, 
this could be a horrendous stretch and we might start seeing, you know, Lowry rumors pop up, uh, rebuilding, all of that sort of discussion. And you went from basically, you know, a two and eight start to a 16 and 15 uh, place right now. And, and it's completely reversed what the Raptors narrative is this year. Totally near. And a key piece of that has been resurgent Siakam, of course, Fred Van Vliet playing incredible, but a huge lineup decision has been starting OG at center, making every Raptors fan wet dream come true. Uh, this is so fun seeing the small ball lineup and having OG and Anobi as their center. What's your take on that small ball? Yeah, I mean, we've been asking for that some time, right? Like, think about the playoff runs where we're like, why don't we just go completely small? Um, and I think the concern before, obviously, was OG, you know, not not being able to, like, get enough, like, on the glass, like, the, the strength piece. Like, you know, there's, there's challenges with, like, Siakam and... I'm happy that they're embracing going small. Um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, especially with Lowry coming back, um, if they continue to adopt that. I feel like Nick Nurse has experimented with it, and he always seems to kind of, like, shy away from it. I mean, there should be no other reason than watching Baines play five minutes <laughs> in a game to allow you to just accept, okay, maybe small ball is the future for us. Right. Um, and I don't know what his hesitation is. It could also just be that it's super taxing on guys like OG and Siakam. Um, and now with those two being asked to do more of the offensive load, maybe it is something where you don't want to risk having to go completely small. But one of the things I noticed even in the, uh, I think it was the Nets Clippers game, or sorry, the, the Jazz Clippers game, was, you know, you neutralized Gobert, to a certain extent, because you just put Marcus Morris out there um, and you have Gobert now running around the perimeter, uh, chasing down Morris. And it's kind of like, it's interesting why do, more teams don't just try to like counter like the Embiid size issue with like going small and forcing Embiid having to like run around the perimeter, having to chase guys, tiring them out. And I don't know why teams haven't adopted that completely. Yeah, it's a great strategy to counter these massive, talented centers. Um, and of course, with the Raps, Norm Powell has been playing the best ball of his career. Talking about heaters, this guy is on one. He didn't play great last night, but prior to that, has just been absolutely on fire. And uh, fun to see that him just explode in this contract year. So, the, the, oh, were you going to say something about Norm? Yeah, and, I, well, just, I, I think with Norm, um, you know, I've, I've hated on him a lot over the years. Um, but I do want to give some love to Norm for how he stepped up with injuries, right? You know, when OG went down, he stepped in, hasn't missed a beat. And then when Kyle Lowry has gone down, he's kind of jumped in. What's interesting about Norm is, though, is that he performs so much better as a starter. Yeah. You know, when, we, when we're healthy and he's kind of sort of our bench unit guy, he just disappears. Right. Um, and it's it's unclear to me what sort of the difference is, especially with the way we stagger our lineups. It shouldn't make much of a difference, but I, it's surprising how much of a difference it makes when he's in the starting lineup versus being a, a bench guy. Yeah, totally agree. He, as the announcers say, he loves to hear his name. I love that 
way of describing how someone loves to start. Um, <laughs> so it'll be fun to see the Raps take on the Sixers again on Tuesday and then Miami on Wednesday. So the team that we play, the Sixers, you know, getting a ton of buzz. They're number one in the East. Embiid is a leading MVP candidate with uh, LeBron. And Nir, as we talked about last time and in our first episode, you know, I'd asked you, is there a world in which this season, Simmons and Embiid, it all finally clicks and they really put it together and the Sixers go on a run and we're starting to see that happen. And in a way, whether they win the title or not, it's a kind of a separate issue, but just seeing them play at this level, be the number one seed, see Embiid as an MVP candidate. I know you and I always debate the process and the merits of it. To me, this makes tanking and everything all completely worth it. Is At the end of the day, you get Simmons and Embiid, and you get this. And this is the result of tanking. Like everything else, you know, there's the missed picks, there's the trades, everything. But at the end of the day, you tank, and you end up with Simmons and Embiid, and this is what you get. Yeah, and I think um, it's interesting how both these guys, this season in particular, uh, are proving so much of what people would rip them for. Um, so definitely with Embiid, if you think about conditioning, you know, being looking engaged, uh, being sort of that offensive force, not just hanging out at the three-point line, being more efficient. And then on the Simmons side, which is this incredibly gifted uh, person in terms of genetics, like just having the length and size and speed, um, and being able to use that on the defensive side, um, and clearly kind of marking himself as, I think, one of the, if not the best perimeter defender in the league. Um, and the way he shut down Lillard over the last few weeks, LeBron, like, there's multiple times where you just watch and you're like, this guy has fully contained him. Um, the two of them have now kind of like found, you know, it's almost like they've moved past all of the narratives um, and are just playing like themselves. And who knows if that's, you know, partly to do with like Doc Rivers, kind of the experience he brings and was able to kind of tap into like, hey, you know, do what you're good at. You know, don't feel like, uh, especially with like Simmons, like I'm sure a lot of that, especially with like the Harden rumors, it's sort of like, oh, he doesn't have a shot. He can't do anything offensively. And I find that he's, you know, much more of like, here's what I know and here's my comfort zone. The same thing with Embiid. I mean, Embiid is having an incredible season right now. Um, you know, when you're thinking like MVP picks, uh, he's at the top of that conversation, especially with Philly's record. I mean, you know, 538 has their sort of like baseball equivalent to wins above replacement um, metrics. And Embiid is second, you know, over, like to, to Jokic, but not by very much, but just when you're thinking both offensively and defensively, there isn't anyone close to him, just in terms of the balance that he provides on both sides. Um, usually you've got guys that are like incredibly offensively gifted, but just defensively are terrible. And, you know, Jokic is someone where if you look at all his metrics, great offensively, but defensively, there's still some holes. Um, LeBron with age, kind of the same thing, but and B, just what he's able to do on both sides of the floor. Like, talk about, you know, you have those superstars now. The question becomes, though, 
and I mean, it's the question being asked by everyone in the last few weeks is, did they miss an opportunity with Harden or not? Um, seeing that Embiid has clearly hit this next level, um, would this have been the opportunity to try to pair him up with, you know, clearly one of the best offensive players of our generation in James Harden? Um, and what kind of like deadly duo they could have been? I argue I'm actually happy that they did not do the trade uh, and that they kept Simmons and Embiid because I just have this feeling that Harden and Embiid would not mesh as well as Simmons and Embiid are. Uh, I feel like Harden's presence would somehow mess with Embiid's flow, and that's just kind of a gut feeling. It, the numbers may not say that, and we're seeing Harden thrive in Brooklyn, but I don't know. There's something about the way that this team is constructed. I love how they just they stuck with Simmons and Embiid, threw shooters around them, and it's just it's just a great roster construction. Yeah, I mean, I I, I agree with you too. Like, I I also wonder just with the type of way that Harden plays, uh, holds the ball a lot. Um, how would that impact sort of Embiid's psyche? And also, look, I love Embiid and Simmons, but it's this process has also been trying to like get them to buy into their skill sets. There's so much that, you know, the development, the systems that they've built around them and all of that, maybe it was actually probably a good call not to just shake things up and have someone like Embiid who traditionally has shown to be sort of like, uh, have that sort of like roller coaster of emotions where could go, you know, down the road of like, Oh, I'm not going to be good in terms of my conditioning, things like that. Cause I'm not seeing the ball gets into a mood and all of that. And maybe you don't want to break that up. Um, but definitely what I'm seeing from Simmons this year, I've always been sort of a, mixed bag on Ben Simmons, but I can clearly see that, you know, that's a talent that you're not going to really find elsewhere right now. Yeah. And I have as well, I was ripping on him, you know, not being able to shoot multiple times over the years, including this year. But what's cool about them keeping it together is in this era of player movement and player empowerment, they're actually like one of the longest tenured duos, star duos in the league. Like, you know, Simmons, this is, we forget, this is only his fourth year of playing. Um, he missed his first year. And B, this is only his fifth year of actually playing in the NBA. He missed his first two seasons. So even, you know, they've played together for four years, which by modern day NBA standards is like so long. And what's cool is that, which, you know, the last dance taught us is that, you know, you build character through the battles. And Maybe this is a little bit more of like an old school way of building a contender. It's like you go through those hardships, you lose to the Raptors in a game seven, and that helps you make you stronger. Yeah. And I mean, it just, it's crazy that we're essentially calling, you know, people are saying this is like a, a championship or bust year for the Sixers. Um, and especially when you put in the context of, you know, those guys have only played basically three seasons together. Uh, it's pretty incredible that we're already at this point where it's championship or bust. And uh, uh, it's a reflection both of like just our culture today and the idea that it's all about rings. But I agree with you. I think, you know, if you think about, yeah, the Jordan years where took a bunch of beatings and had to adjust how he approached the game, how he approached it with his teammates, um, you kind of have to go through all of those battles to kind of get to the point where, I mean, look at like a LeBron, right? Like uh, just playoff tested, 
kind of understands what is needed in terms of like that full season marathon. And I do think when you look at the talent, uh, especially with their both their defensive and offensive balance between those two superstars, it's hard to find, you know, I, I, I put them up there with any other dynamic duo in the league, just based on both sides of the floor. Absolutely. Uh, and here we talked to, we mentioned Harden and it, let's talk about the Nets and they are on fire. They have won six in a row. Uh, KD is out, but Harden and Kyrie are thriving. And a lot of people are crediting this shift in their dynamic to a conversation that they had in which Kyrie basically said to Harden, who knows how this actually played out, but per his report, he said to Harden, you're the point guard. And, you know, that's funny that that's how it gets reported but through Kyrie's lens. However, nevertheless, that is the perfect setup. Uh, when you, Martin, and I were talking about how is this Nets thing going to shake out, we were saying how KD is the most talented, but probably will end up deferring because of the egos of Harden and Kyrie. And what we're seeing here, hopefully, is that Kyrie will be the one that can defer and still maintain his elite status. But... Harden brings the ball up, Kyrie's the shooting guard, and when KD comes back, KD will be the small forward, power forward, or center at times, and that is going to be, and has been already, beautiful basketball. Yeah, I look, I think that the defense still is terrible. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, there, There's been a couple games where it's just been basically a shootout, but I agree with you. I think... Um, the fact that, you know, I, I think Kyrie, his skill set was almost always like a shooting guard. You know, I don't think I'd ever, I never really watched him for his playmaking. And to now have a guy like Harden, who is probably one of the best passers in the league, one of the, you know, the guys that can kind of get so many people different types of shots, um, was able to create his own shot as well to now have that balance agreed upon between them. That's the part that we thought initially there'd be friction where, Oh my God, who's going to get the ball in what situations, who's going to accept a different type of role. And the assumption we'd always made was that like Durant was going to be the odd man out. Um, clearly that hasn't been the case. And I think a lot of it is because of the history that Durant and Harden have um, and the history that these guys have. And it's coming together a, you know, really well. And the other issue that, you know, it, at least temporarily uh, looks like it's been okay. I mean, I don't know how long-term DeAndre Jordan is as a solution to this, but just on the rebounding side, uh, they've been able to kind of counter a lot of the efforts that other teams are making with like trying to go small, um, trying to get some of that like rim protection completely out of the picture. Um, in the same way that I think, I mentioned how the Clippers play the jazz. Like you noticed that a little bit last night, but then Deandre Jordan had, you know, the biggest offensive rebound of the game with that putback shot to basically win the game. And I think that's why they're still going to be in the market for a big, um, I, I, it's just at this point where I'm like, I think they could just play shootouts. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, I've always been kind of on the play, like the, the side of, well, at some point you got to play defense and then those shots aren't going to go in and things like that. But the way that these three guys, like I, I just can't remember the last time we saw 
you know, three players of this caliber just offensively. Like, obviously, there was the Steph, uh, Clay, KD. Um, but just in terms of the playmaking, like, I don't think I've seen that uh, before. Yeah. In terms of between, just even between Harden and Irving. Like, Clay was just more of your, like, just an incredible spot up shooter, you know? And this is much more of like, these guys can just milk the entire 24 seconds and still create beautiful basketball. Exactly. Clay was uh, one of the best shooters of all time, if not the best, but he wasn't that playmaker off the dribble. I mean, Kyrie, this guy is unbelievable. His handles are incredible. The way that he finishes at the rim, numbers wise, I mean, he's averaging, interestingly, the most points per game in his career. He's averaging 27.7 points per game in, you know, year uh, year 10 and at age 28. He's also shooting the best percentage of his career, 52.5%. He's a career 47% shooter. So just unbelievable season from Kyrie. He, you know, got rewarded as an all-star starter. And then you've got Harden, who's averaging the most assists in his career, 11.4 assists a game. So... Super interesting stuff going on in Brooklyn. Um, Nir, before we jump to some West contenders, anyone else in the East that you wanted to touch base about? I mean, I'm shocked that you haven't brought up Mike Budenholzer uh, <laughs> in this entire span because you've been you've been quite joyous uh, in the down or the demise that the Bucks have seen over the last week. Um, you know, obviously losing Drew was a big reason with that. But just in general, the Bucks looking like, you know, playoffs Bucks, uh, a little bit lost, confused, depth is an issue, and the classic Boonholzer can't adjust. <laughs> yes. um, so I think that's a team where it's interesting. You know, they've kind of gone all in with the Drew piece. And is that like, you know, health is going to be an issue in the playoffs. Like they can't count on you know, all their guys being completely healthy. So this is a good test of that. And and it's clear that the depth isn't there. They look totally, totally out of sync. Couldn't agree more. And you've been the recipient of multiple Bud stays losing texts this week. <laughs> and it's just, it's just disbelief that this guy does, hasn't made no adjustments in three years. This is the exact same team that lost to us in the playoffs with Kawhi when we built the wall on Giannis. We just built a wall uh, on Giannis, and they look exactly the same. Like that team, that game, those games that we saw could have been from three seasons ago, and it like wouldn't that wouldn't surprise you, right? Yeah, and I the the thing that has come up more recently that I've thought about, and this happened when I was watching the Bucks Raptors, um, was at what point do you just utilize Giannis like Shaq? You know, just throw them in the post every time, kind of build your offense the way that, like, teams kind of built their offense around Shaq, where it's like, got all these shooters, but it still seems like at times they kind of want Giannis to be a bit of a playmaker. They kind of want him to, like, shoot. They're putting him in position. And it's like, I don't know. At at a certain point, I feel like we've seen all that, and teams have game-planned clearly around that. Like, maybe just maximize what Giannis does well. Like, the times where I'm just like, you give Giannis the ball down near the post, it is so incredibly hard to stop him. That's a great point. But you point. know when it's easy to stop him? When he's at the ball at the top of the like three-point line and he's trying to go downhill and teams just build a wall and he gets an offensive foul. 
Right. You know, it's like teams just know how to do that. Like the fact that everyone talks about building a wall around Giannis, like how is it that Coach Bud hasn't adjusted to this? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, Nira, that's a great point that maybe they are misusing him. Not that you have to have him go in the post every possession, but like I when you when you were describing that, it sounded like bizarre to me and rare because it's it never happens. Like I never even really picture Giannis like pinning his man down and calling for the ball because I always picture him at the top of the key barreling down. I mean, he's incredible getting to the rim, but yeah, perhaps they're using him wrong or at least just throw in more possessions where he's, he's getting the ball down there and just let him go to work. Yeah. It's, you know, it's like, I don't, it's to your point. I, I don't see it enough. And that's why I think I'm like, why don't you try something like that? Clearly, they're just hitting this point where I find it perplexing um, that it's such common knowledge on how to defend the Bucks, And like the Raptors are such a hilarious example of this. Like that's literally all they do is they just build a wall <laughs> yeah. and, and it's working for them every single time. And I'm like, at some point, can't you just realize, okay, if we can't get them going downhill, maybe we just plant them in the post and then, a team like the Raptors are going to be screwed because they don't have a big that can contend with them. And he's just much more agile than a big. So you just got all these like unique advantages and I just don't see it enough. And I, I don't get, you know, it's funny. I follow a couple like bucks writers, like slash fans. And it's just the disgust towards Bud is incredible. <laughs> um, they just don't think he's got any sort of personnel adjustments that make sense. Uh, he relies too much, and like he's playing them heavy minutes, as per usual, kind of wearing them to the ground. And it's unfortunate because like Chris Middleton's having a great season, um, and it's again one of these things. Like you talk about Philly being championship or bust. You know, if if the Bucks don't make the finals, like th- this is a huge indictment on that team, especially with the way that they traded away a lot of assets um, to get the guys they have right now. Yeah, and I, I think neither of us think that they're going to make the finals or even really the Eastern Conference finals. Like, not only are they not winning the championship, they're not making the NBA finals, and they're probably not going to win the East because it's going to be Sixers Nets unless something crazy happens. Yeah, and I, I think, like, it's surprising to me they didn't, you know, you look at some of the depth issues, like, Brooke Lopez looks like he's completely fallen off a cliff. Yeah. Um, and... It's incredible that he's still averaging, you know, I think he's averaging, yeah, 27. So he's averaging similar minutes to last year, half the amount of blocks, which is what most of his value was, um, isn't shooting the ball well, you know, he's averaging less points, rebounds. Like it's, it's one of those things where he's become a liability to that team. And the depth really just isn't in, like there. Like DiVincenzo has like, you know, every fifth game is a good game. Um, and, and so if you have to rely heavily on Drew, who has had injury history, has, has been able to complete a full season, and then you're just back to the Middleton Giannis with like nothing around, like these teams are going to completely figure this team out come playoff time and they're going to be lost and confused. And it's another year of Giannis where it's like, wow, this guy locked in, um, and what is the ceiling for the Bucks? Totally, yeah. Coach Bud stays losing as long as he's there. Near, they are not going to win an NBA title. Um, no. So, near, let's shift to the West, and then we'll hit a couple bigger picture topics. So, the Jazz are at the top of the West. 
They're the darlings of the league. They went on this incredible streak, 19-1 and over 20 games, 10-game winning streak. And admittedly, I haven't watched them much this year. So because I, And I know you, and I know myself. We're both skeptical of them, regardless of their record. We're both probably like, that record means nothing. So I decided to watch the Jazz Clippers second half on Saturday, and the Jazz lost. And, you know, in, these big, in this big moment with a fully healthy Clippers squad, with, with Kawhi, with Paul George, they lost. And I was like, okay, that's, uh, that's what I need to see. Like, I still don't, I don't believe in the Jazz near. How about you? It's so funny. I, I was talking to someone the other day and they were like, oh, who do you have as like your title contenders? And I was like, well, I've got the Lakers, Clippers, you know, Sixers, Nets, Bucks are kind of in there. The Jazz didn't even, like, it wasn't something where I was like, oh, yeah, they, they'd be in the mix, even though they're having an incredible regular season. But, groups, how many times have we seen this? You know, think back to the run that the Hawks had, yes. the Raptors had. Yeah. You know, it's like regular season, you know, it's it's such a moot point if you don't have like there aren't a lot of points like the Jazz just play such good team basketball that in the regular season when some of these like other superstars kind of check out it's like okay great they're all clicking they're all doing the right things um, but there aren't moments that I watch the Jazz and I'm like wow I'm afraid of that guy that that guy's going to take over and like I love Mitchell and I think he's made an incredible improvement um you know, he's definitely the go-to guy, but he reminds me a lot of like, you know, a DeMar DeRozan, which is like, guys like LeBron aren't scared of him. They're like, okay, he's going to score his points. It's going to be inefficient. Um, there's going to be a lot of the offense that kind of like rotates around him. And ultimately, no one there on the Jazz like really scared me. And I think they're getting, you know, obviously Mike Conley's production, like, when you look at, I think right now, the plus minus numbers for the Jazz in general, but like Mike Conley has been a huge help for them. But again, these remind me, these like plus minus numbers and all these like calculator stats remind me of like those Hawks years where it was like, well, look at their like plus minus, look at the Raptors plus minus and things like that. And come playoff time, they completely flame out. And I just don't think they have that superstar. And I, I it led me to actually look up, you know, the last like 30 years, the title teams. Um, and the one exception that I found where like, you couldn't say it was like a top 10, like superstar. Can I guess? Yeah. Oh, four Pistons. Exactly. Like, and, but they had record breaking, like they had one of the best defenses ever. Mm. They held, uh, I think it was like, they still hold the postseason record for most games under 90 points, their opponent. And so I don't think the Jazz have, like, of course they have Rudy Gobert, but I don't think they have, like, this, like, next-level defense either. So you go back, and there's only one team that never had a superstar. Like, to me, again, you have to have superstars. And, I mean, the Raptors were a great example of this. Like, we got Kawhi, and it changes the calculus completely. And as much as, like, you know, we want to romanticize the Cinderella stories, I just, I the cynic in me, having been also a student of NBA history knows that you just need to have superstars. And we, this is what we've been saying for years with like the raps having to go out and try to get something in free agency, for example. It's so true. And that Donovan Mitchell, DeMar 
era, Raps era DeMar comparison is excellent. And I hadn't even thought about that. But that's exactly... He's DeMar who can shoot threes. I mean, he hits like three and a half threes a game. But it, their game is so similar. You know, he shoots 42%. Um, you're not scared of him. He's a great regular season scorer. But like in the playoffs... I mean, he actually... He did play really well in the playoffs last year. You know, but it's just such a good point here about the superstars. Like, there is a reason that the 4 Pistons stand out as this like mythical team... Even, you know, the uh, 2011 Mavs, Dirk was a superstar. Maybe not to the same degree as some of these other teams that have had these superstars, but he was a superstar on another level than anyone on this Jazz team. And you wonder, like, can Mitchell be that guy? He's not there yet. He could get there, but he's just not there yet. It's like they have all the pieces. Like, Gobert is hailed, you know, by basketball nerds as, you know, one of the best defensive players you know, maybe ever because he's going to, he may win DPOY again. Um, you know, you got Mitchell. They're so deep. Clarkson's going to win six man of the year. Conley's playing, you know, his great ball. Ingles is just a fantastic player to have. It's like everything is there, but yet like true ball fans just don't believe in this team. <laughs> no, they do, and it's so unfortunate because like we, we should be into this kind of basketball. Like, we should be like, this is great. This is what I want my team to do. Yeah. And it's funny, for so many years, um, you know, even the Raptors kind of held them to this, like, held, Raptors fans held the Raptors standard as, like, this is what teams should aspire to. Then we got Kawhi, we won the title. And now we're like, oh, right, yeah, yeah. Like, all of that, no, <laughs> yeah. that's that's not going to actually work. Um, and you need to go out and get these superstars. And you're right, like, Mitchell, it's just too early to kind of put him, you know, the hope is like his ceiling is like a Dwayne Wade, right? Like can become this like game changing superstar on both sides of the floor. Um, and I just don't know if that's there yet. And that's why the nuggets to me as well, you know, I think Jokic is clearly morphing into that superstar, but man, if they, I would love for Beal to become available and, you know, they throw out an offer where it's, even some sort of combination of Michael Porter and a bunch of picks or whatever it might be. Um, because if you pair Jokic with another superstar, you're now putting the Nuggets in the class with like all these other teams. But until that, I can't put them in the same tier as the Lakers or the Clippers or the Nets or the Sixers. I just, I can't. And I think it's because Jamal Murray to me has just been so inconsistent. And I, I kind of just, I can't trust that team. Totally agree. Murray, you know, we want to root for him. He's Canadian. He represents, like, Canada basketball. And weirdly, statistically, he actually is having, you know, one of his better seasons of his career. He's averaging a career high in points per game, 21 points a game, you know, four and a half assists, four and a half boards. He's shooting 47% from the field, which is a career high for him. He's hitting two and a half threes a game and shooting 38% from three, also a career high. And yet, and yet, despite those numbers, like, He's so inconsistent. Like all those, those are averages in that he'll get forty-one game and then ten the next. Yeah, let me read you. Okay, so <laughs> yeah, I want to hear. Let's, are you let's re- just talk. Let's just talk when the the calendar turned February. So he scores 16, 20, then eleven, then eight, then twenty-two. Then he goes on this heater where he scores, you know, twenty-five plus with that fifty points. But like you could see, and then even before that, it's like. 5 points, 18 points, then 26, then 16, 14, 20, then 16. Like, like, there's just, you can't have games where you're, you know, 
great, you scored 51 game, but then you had like multiple games where you scored like 9 and 14 points. Right. Um, and that kind of inconsistency is brutal. That is not what, you know, when you're talking about, especially if like you just become labeled as sort of this like hot streaking shooter, that is not a superstar. Um, you know, you think of like the Beals and the Hardens, like they might have some off nights, but like they will get their points. You know, they like it. They're not going to score nine points in a game. Like that's just not going to happen for them. Totally. Um, and you have no excuse because you're one of the best playmakers in the league and Jokic creating like, and the offense is like all of these opportunities are available, whether you cut, you get open threes, so there should be no excuses here, and, and it's just the inconsistency kills me. Nir, you're fired up because you want Jokic to go on a run, your boy. And you know what? I haven't actually done like a deep dive on his stats yet this year. Like I knew he was, was and is playing just at another level, but I didn't realize like how big of a jump he's taken. Like I didn't really realize that he's averaging 26.6 points per game, like seven points more than last year. He's averaging 11 boards and eight and a half assists. And his percentages, 56% from the field, 40 from three, and 87 from the line. Like, dude, this is absurd. Like, when I was mentioning that, like, the, the 538, it's like Raptors score. He's in a league of his own. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I, last year I had him on my fantasy team, and the guy just showed up out of shape. But this season he kind of came in focused, um, clearly He's playing the best basketball of his life and just dominates um, not only offensively, but he's also been great defensively. He's been checked in, but it's the scoring. Cause that's the one thing with Jokic. He was always so conservative. He was kind of feeling like, Oh, like I got to pass the ball and I got to like create opportunities for my teammates. And it's clear with the, the lack of depth that the jazz, I mean, sorry, the nuggets have this year that he's just accepted this. Like, no, I'm going to take over games. Um, and it's incredible. Like he's averaging twenty-seven points, twelve rebounds, and nine assists a game. Yeah. Um, and it's not like he's chasing stats either, like the Westbrook years, those triple double years or anything like that. Like he's doing this efficiently. And I wish there was like a stat that could show you the assists that like, you know, it's not like chasing anything. It's literally like he just found the right guy cutting at the right time. Um, and it's just going through the offense the right way. Yeah. And it's Funny because I still don't like view him for some reason as an NBA superstar. I think part of that is just my own bias in terms of when I look at him, it's like this guy isn't like the one of the top five players in the league. Like he just doesn't look like it, and yet he is. Yeah, I mean he was the forty first pick. Right. In the twenty fourteen draft. Like, you know, I don't think anyone thought uh this guy was, you know, gonna have the potential that he had. And um it's just crazy that, like, I mean, that was the year Wiggins went one. You know, you had Embiid at three. Um, and then after that, like, Zach Levine, 13. Nurkic, 16th. But, like, to get him at 41, like, think about what he's doing today. It's just insane. Insane. And you mentioned Michael Porter Jr., who's playing better than last year, but he probably has underperformed a little bit in terms of meeting the expectations that people have on him. Again, this is his second year in the league. Like, he just finished a rookie season in the bubble. The guy's played, like, 75 career games. So he's so raw. Um, but there are just those nights where he explodes, and you're, it's just so tantalizing. 
he's was such a wild card. Yeah. If, if he's on that team is that team is hard to beat um, because he provides such a like, and especially with the fact that like you know, it's less Paul Millsap minutes. You know, it's less like well, like all these like you just complete. Um, it could completely go south when you have to start playing minutes to like Paul Millsap heavy minutes and things like that. So Porter, there's such a load on him, but he's been so inconsistent. And, you know, Mike Malone has always had this thing with him where he just feels like he's immature, isn't developed the right way. And that's why like he comes in and out of the starting lineup. Um, I think he's actually coming off the bench today. And it's, it's something where like, at what point do you wonder if the Nuggets just kind of float him around while he's tantalizing and couldn't net you that superstar that you're looking for? Yeah. like He's what? one of the most valuable. If you just think about, like, I mean, obviously Simmons and those Harden talks, but, like, outside of that, like, Michael Porter Jr. in terms of just the potential, youth, like, the age, um, and the fact that the Nuggets might look to shop him, like, there's such an incredible trade asset. Huge huge asset um and yeah he's the most he's the most available young star like you know a zion or a jaw those guys are like fully locked in but because of porter there's some questions about his drive or his you know his maturity those little you know wrinkles in his armor then makes him like a little bit more available for a trade um and and that's where i think like you know, it's like, what do the Nuggets need? And um, one of the things is like, I think having some, like, it's just the inconsistency with that team, right? They just need someone that night in and night out can get them what they need with Jokic. And the problem is that team is just such a mess because, I mean, look at, they're they're not doing well in the standings. And a lot of it is just because like, every night Jokic has been great, but then it's like, just a Russian roulette of like, who's going to step up after that? And it's never the same guy. It's Facundo Campazzo, clearly. Exactly. <laughs> Nir, a couple other West contenders that I want to get to. One is the Clippers. And Nir, this team is just so un- unlikable. And I need to get your opinion on them. So I want to, part of me wants to root for them at times. And just, because I love Kawhi. I mean, all of us Raps fans have a soft spot for Kawhi. I have absolutely no hard feelings for him leaving. Like, that's fine. I, I just, I will always love his style of play and the no-nonsense. It is just so refreshing in this NBA when there's all these stars who complain about everything. Like, he, like yeah, he'll throw his hands up, but he, he never goes to the ref. He's just so locked in. He won't even, like, da- I love all the videos of him not, like, dapping up his teammates in the huddle. So there's Kawhi, who I, like, want to root for. And then the rest of the roster is so... And they got Ibaka. But the rest of the roster is just so unlikable. I mean, Pat Bev, like, it's so love-hate with him. Like, at times I love him. I'm like, oh, I would love to have this guy on my team. And at other times I'm like, dude, just chill out. And then Paul George, again, like, at times you're like, oh, he's so talented. And then you're just like, yeah, but he's playoff P and he crumbles in the big stage. And then, like, Marcus Morris, so annoying. The whole backstory of just this organization and how, like... You just kind of look, I just look at the Clippers and I'm like, this franchise, they've got no like meaningful history and they're just always going to be like kind of irrelevant. So where do you stand on the Clippers? You haven't even mentioned that I have to watch Steve Ballmer every time a player goes to shoot a free throw, (laughs) sitting there clapping away like a moron. Um, 
So like that's it doesn't even scratch that point either. But like I agree with you. I think um, it's unfortunate because they Paul George is having one of his best seasons of his career. Like he's shooting way better than he has ever. He's almost on a 50, 50, 90 pace. Um, he's never even shot like 45% um, or 30, I mean, 40% from three, but he's, he's topping that. So there's part of me that wants to root for a guy like Paul George, especially with the hate that he got and knowing, you know, the challenges he faced in the bubble and things like that. Um, but they basically gave themselves that death sentence when they were just so cocky last year and so smug about it. And you're right. The collection of guys, they're all just guys that you could easily root for. There aren't any sort of like fun, lovable types. They're almost like a, a group of like your schoolyard bullies yeah. um, that you're just like annoyed to play pickup ball with. It's like, Oh, I have to go up against these guys. Like they're so annoying. They're full of shit. They're, they're all in their heads about their thing. And I do think, you know, the team as constructed, I, I still don't, I don't know. I don't have a, a great feel for them. And I think part of the issue is, you know, can you count on Lou Williams in the playoffs? Like we haven't been able to for years. Um, you know, Abaka has, was a great addition to them, but like, does he swing the needle enough? Do we see this Paul George also exist in the playoffs? Like still to be determined. Um, but I, at the same time, you just have to believe that Kawhi and Paul George together, especially the way Paul George is playing, they're clearly the biggest com- like contenders to the Lakers in the Western Conference. Yeah, exactly. When you have those two guys, they're just so elite that if they can put it together, they can give the Lakers a shot. Um, yeah. Lakers-wise, we know AD is out for a month, which I know is a sore subject for you, so we won't spend much time on it. But I think the interesting piece there is, you know, is this is LeBron going to win the MVP? It's still early, a lot of season left. But let's say if you had to make your vote today, Nir, you've been given a ballot. Are you voting for LeBron or are you voting for Embiid, Jokic, whoever? Like, basically, are you saying LeBron is the MVP? I, like, I would put him in the top five, but I'm curious to know, like, is this just now a narrative shift? Like where it's like all these years where we didn't give LeBron the MVP. So it's like, we got to give it to him. Like statistically, you know, it's incredible what he's doing at, you know, at this age and with the amount of minutes that he's played coming off of finals. But, you know, guys like Embiid, like the Sixers are doing just as well. Jokic is playing out of his mind, carrying that team. Um, I, I just, it's like Lillard, for example, you know, without CJ McCollum and Nurkic, the fact that Portland's still in that, like, you know, top part of that Western Conference, like, I, I just, I'm surprised. I wouldn't give him my, like, first vote MVP right now. And I, I wonder if some of it is just this narrative of, you know, we've neglected LeBron for so many years. But the MVP award has always been that debate of, like, are we voting on, like, who's the best player in the NBA or who is just the most valuable that year to that team. Like th- those are kind of like two different things. Cause the consensus, everyone knows this LeBron is the best. Like, there's no, there's no question about that, but for just looking at this year, like statistically and, and the impact that they're having on their team, I just think that, you know, what some of these other guys are doing is pretty incredible. And I think LeBron, it's almost like we've shifted back to remember the years where, where it's like, 
yeah, you just have to give LeBron the MVP. Right, and where the big test is going to be, how do they do over this next month when AD is out? If they still maintain, you know, one or two seed in the West, then, you know, he may end up locking it in. If they falter a bit and, you know, become the three or four seed, we may sh- see that narrative shift more towards uh, Embiid, Jokic, or even Lillard coming in hot. Um, but, near, I also want to touch on the Phoenix Suns, and we got to revisit our Suns-Warriors bet. Uh, well, it's a great segue, because I was going to say, you didn't even mention Steph in that conversation. Yes. <laughs> so, well, come on, we're not giving it to... Steph, even though Westbrook did win it one year when his team was like the sixth seed, but the Warriors are the eighth seed and they're 16 and 15. Steph is not getting it, although he's putting up insane numbers. But we had a bet at the beginning of the year Suns, Warriors, who would finish with a better record? I picked Suns, you picked Warriors. You were incredulous that I picked the Suns, that they would be <laughs> better than the Warriors. Near this Suns team is a lot of fun. They're 19 and 10, they're fourth in the West. Chris Paul, man. So I mean, everyone's giving a lot of love to LeBron and how you know how is he doing this at in year eighteen or nineteen, whatever it is, at age thirty six. And here's Chris Paul, age thirty five, in again year sixteen or seventeen. He's averaging seventeen, eight and a half assists, four and a half boards, a steal and a half. Near, I just looked this up. He's shooting ninety seven percent from the line. <laughs> that is the most absurd stat of the season, I think. Yeah, it's. Look, there's sometimes you just got to take the L, and uh, I accepted this early on. I look, Chris Paul, we talked about him last year, you know, with OKC and what he was able to do, and I doubted him again. And you know, you could arguably say he's been the best player on that Suns team. Um, and that's shocking when you think about like Devin Booker being there, and that's what's pretty crazy about it is. It's just like, well, how is this guy still doing this? Um, and and they've got some like interesting good pieces in like Michael Bridges, Cameron Johnson, Jake Crowder was a great pickup for them. And so I don't see myself winning that bet this year, and I've kind of conceded, and partly to do with not only the Sun's success, but also this, the Warriors just looking like, you know, um, especially with Draymond having his injury <laughs> issues, Wiseman not looking like he's going to be anywhere ready to play in the next year. Yeah. Um, and then Ubre and Wiggins just, you know, trading good games and bad games. <laughs> yeah. Talk about inconsistency. So Suns, I mean, they're, they're an interesting team in that, like, they still could, like, potentially make some moves. They could, you know, work around the edges. But um, as constructed, like, what a, what a win for the Suns overall. What's your take on DeAndre Aiden? Because he is a guy that I really cannot figure out yet in the NBA. So this is his third season. He's kind of regressed in a way this year. His points are down. He's down from 18 to 14. He's still grabbing 12 boards, you know, two assists. His blocks are down from one and a half to one. He's shooting 58% from the field, so that's up from 54%. He's a 71% free throw shooter. He doesn't shoot any threes. So what's the deal with Aiden? I don't really understand his game or how he, like, fits and what do we want him to be. Yeah, I mean, talk about the impact that Chris Paul would have, right? Like, it's surprising that, you know, the immediate thing I thought about when Chris Paul joined the Suns was I was like, oh, remember when Chris Paul and Tyson Chandler were just lethal um, in that pick and roll? And I thought this would be the same thing, and it hasn't happened yet. And I wonder, yeah, I don't know about him. Um, Physically, he is so incredibly strong and gifted. 
and it just seems like he's not putting it all together or maybe it's like a, a learning curve because you go from you know not being not having someone of like Chris Paul's IQ to now having to adjust and maybe it'll come as the season goes along but he has been a big disappointment in my eyes yeah me too um, but the Suns will be fun. They're going to make the playoffs for the first time in this Devin Booker era, so that will be fun to see them in the playoffs there. Um, you mentioned the Warriors, and you mentioned Steph going on his absolute tear, um, and I'll, I definitely can let you fanboy over him, but I do want to get to Draymond Green's comments, um, you know, just about the state of the NBA. But before that, Steph, I mean, just having an MVP numbers-esque season reminiscent of his 15-16 year, um, how much fun have you been having watching him? Yeah, I mean, it's it, like I remember that 15, 16 year just being like, what am I watching? <laughs> um, and then he kind of like, you know, obviously they got KD and um, we weren't able to see Steph and his like, that's what last year was supposed to be, right? Which was, hey, KD's out now, like Steph going back to Steph, but then he got the hand injury. Um, it's just nuts. You're just like watching a guy that's completely just transforming the NBA. And he said, um, like, he feels like the best he's ever felt, which is very fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's nuts the numbers that he's like, when you're talking about like um, the volume of shots that he's taking and he's still able to connect on like 49, like he's, you know, that 50, 40, 90 club at like his volume, it's insane. Yeah, it's wild. Um, and I can't believe he's 32 already. Like, what happened to young babyface Steph? How is this guy, like, already 32? I know. I was watching um, Steph. Uh, there was a friend sent, like, the Davidson-Oklahoma uh, game where Russell and KD are, like, sitting courtside. Oh. And you're just watching, like, a baby Steph, like, score 44 points against, like, Blake Griffin, like, you know, matchup of the night kind of thing. And you just look at Steph and you're like, wow. It feels like a lifetime ago. Yeah. And because you like watch him now, he's just this, you know, like he should be kind of like over the hump, but he's not. Um, <laughs> if anything, he's just, all these guys are just getting better with age. He's going to age so well in the NBA. Um, but, and so Nears, Draymond's comments were super interesting. We, we texted about it a little bit. What was your take on it? So he basically said that the way that the Pistons, sorry, not the Pistons, the Cavs are treating Drummond. Um, in terms of sitting him, waiting for a trade partner, is a double standard, you know, along with maybe the Pistons um, sitting Blake Griffin, because when players demand trades, we vilify them. Um, when teams say to this guy, you know, we actually don't want you to come play here, and you actually are, like, banned from the team, we don't make a big deal about it. Do you th Is that a double standard? Yeah, so I think with Draymond's comments, like, I agree with... Um, his take overall, I didn't, I didn't think I agreed with the Harden piece. I think we still have to think of Harden as different in this situation because he fully didn't come into the season in shape, fully checked out. You know, there, there's like a way to kind of do these things. Um, but overall, I, I agree with them. I think like who signs Drummond to that contract? Like, you know, how are these organizations not like they should be penalized for this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, this is the reality that you live in. And now you put it out on the players, you know, like you make the player feel bad for the contract that they get. You know, think about the guys that we've now, you know, classified, like 
it's funny, like, I can't talk about John Wall without Googling his, like, what's left of his contract. (laughs) You know, the other day, like, um, like, I I Googled D'Angelo Russell's contract. Like, it's, and I, like, vilify him for his contract. And then I realized, wait, that was just the organization that, like, decided to put that value on him, you know? And now I can't even separate the two. And then we start to question these guys as, like, these dollar values. You know, it's like, well, you haven't lived up to your contract. You haven't done this. And then you look around them and, like, the organization has also done nothing to build a good team around these people. Like, think about, like, the Timberwolves, for example, right? Like, they just appeased Carl Anthony Towns, like, oh, let's just get, like, a guy that he'll like. They built a terrible roster. Right. Um, They hamstrung themselves. They also traded away a pick that potentially could be you know, a top three, you know, top, like a fourth pick for the Warriors because it's only top three protected. And it's, so it's, you've hamstrung yourself. And it's like, we just, it's, it's surprising how often we don't actually trash the teams for just how poor they build these rosters. And we always talk about like busts and these players being busts. And like, it's always fascinating me to watch like a team, like the Utah Jazz, for example, that like build really well. So someone like Mitchell can thrive. You know, no one pegged, Mitchell is this like superstar, but I think part of that is just like the culture that you build around him. And, but then you look at guys that like, we're just like, oh yeah, that guy's a bust. But it's like, man, like think about like how unengaged Wiggins was for the early part of his career. So much of that was just like the, the way you built that roster, the coaching staff, all of that. And now he goes to the Warriors and he looks engaged and he looks like a different player. And it's like one of those things where it's like, it's the player, you know, like, oh, but it's a lot of it is also just the organization that you surround themselves with. Absolutely. And Nir, you brought up the T-Wolves, which is interesting because I know you wanted to touch on, you know, before we wrap up here, the very sudden firing of Ryan Saunders and hiring of Raptors assistant Chris Finch, uh, which was really, you know, took everyone by surprise last night. Um, Finch, who just came over, I think from Britain or something, <laughs> a nurse knew him from Britain or they had some connection. He was a Raps assistant this year and then out of nowhere gets hired by the T-Wolves. You know, him and Gerson Rosas, the T-Wolves president and of basketball operations have a connection from their Houston days. But the big issue with a lot of NBA fans uh, and players was that the T-Wolves did not end up promoting assistant David Vanderpool, Vanderpool, who was a noted Blazers assistant who really helped Dame and CJ. So what was your reaction to them perhaps bypassing a great internal candidate for Chris Finch? Um, I mean, just frustration. Uh, You know, it's like, talk about just also it being Black History Month. Exactly. And can you, how many NBA coaches are Black in the NBA right now? Off the top of my head, um, I would guess like probably three: uh, Doc Rivers, Dwayne Casey. Um, those are the two that come to mind. Doc Rivers, Dwayne Casey, Lloyd Pierce, right. in Atlanta, JV Bickerstaff in Cleveland, and Monty Williams in Phoenix. So five. Wow. So five coaches, and your player base is eighty percent black. Yeah. Um, and it's not like there's no black assistant coaches or guys that have put in their time. David Vanterpool being a perfect example of that, you know, Lillard and McCollum credit so much of their development and success to a guy like that. And to me, it's just surprising in this case, like 
look, Chris Finch might be a good candidate, but you're telling me what, like, you couldn't get him at the end of the season. At least give Vanterpool an opportunity as an interim coach just to show what he can do, um, evaluate, and then at the end of the season, if Finch is the guy that you want, Finch is the guy that you get. But to do this, like, mid-season, clearly it's just, like, it's one of those things where was Vanterpool given a fair chance to actually show that he could be potentially head coach. And it's like, you know, you pulled him away from Portland, clearly with, I guess, the intention being that maybe longer term, like, this would be something where you could kind of fill in and just to be completely overlooked like that. And um, I think it just, it's annoying because as NBA fans, we like to kind of think of ourselves as like morally superior to the NFL, where this is just a rampant issue, like where they've had to create a rule to basically have diversity interviews, like the Rooney rule. And the fact that the NBA doesn't need it because we're always like, no, no, the NBA, man, it's diverse. Like it's got, and then you look at, it, it's like five coaches, yeah. you know, and in Ty an Lu, 80% Ty Lu black as well. league. I thought about Ty Lue. What's that? Ty Lue Yeah, as well. Ty Lue, yeah. yeah. You know, it's like one of those things where it's like, it's shocking to me, um, especially with like how many of these guys that are former players that are super smart have put in the work, the, the time, um, and they just get completely overlooked time and time again. And it's like, it's like these players are also upset. Like you could see Lillard and McCollum going off on Twitter last night. It's like, you know, they're basically saying like, man, these locker rooms need guys like David Vanderpool. You know, it's like they just need a feeling of being able to relate um, and knowing that there's like opportunities like that for these people. Totally. That the relatability is so key. I mean, absolutely. The NBA needs more black coaches and, the it's a it's a problem uh, that probably doesn't get talked about enough because like you really astutely pointed out the league is seen as so progressive so that it can kind of like hide under that umbrella because of its comparison to the NFL for example um, but yet what we're seeing is yeah it's actually not that not as progressive as we think um, no yeah anything else you wanted to add to that no and I, ju- I just think that like it's uh, the Timberwolves like. You even think about like Glenn Taylor as being one of the worst owners. You know, it's this is just like it's one of those things where that's why I ended up doing a deep dive into D'Angelo Russell's contract. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to see like how quickly can Cat get out of there, right? Uh, but you know, it's locked in for a few more years. That that franchise is just they're screwed. They're, and they look miserable. I mean, we saw them against the Raps. Like their body language. Talk about bad body language. They look awful. Yeah, it's it's so bad. And now for these guys. To know that the story right now is that like they completely like it's just it's such a bad look and then for a new coach I mean, to come in with that exactly Chris Finch is screwed because like and he, David Vanderpool is still one of his assistants it's gonna be I so know. what's how, what's gonna go on there yeah like I, I read some quotes from the press conference today he was the the GM was being asked all these questions around it yeah it's like that's the main story now right wow um, all right any other teams in the West you wanted to hit on before we wrap up here. No, I think we did a pretty good job covering sort of like the, the main teams that kind of were the mix. Obviously for me, like, you know, the team that I always have one eye on is the Dallas Mavericks, right? Like I think they're, I find them really interesting in that I don't, I don't know what else you can do with that roster, <laughs> right. um, but as constructed, it's clear that they're not very good. Right. And, you know, it's like, you don't have a lot of flexibility. Um, and so, you know, it's, it sucks because Luca is clearly, you know, one of the top 10 players in the league. Yeah. And it's just that the way that 
like everyone else on the team, it just looks like a complete mess. Defensively, Porzingis looks like, you know, a complete pylon out there. Um, <laughs> and so it's just, it, that's the team that I always have my eye on. I think there's nothing of interest to me that I've seen from them that I even think that, you know, even if they get into a play-in game, would make any noise which is so fascinating because we've talked about a bunch of duos on this episode and you think about Luka Doncic and Kristaps Porzingis what a freaking duo and yet they kind of the team sucks they're 13 and 15 I mean they've been decimated by COVID at times but even you know even still like they're just really not that good and they have two unicorn-esque players I know it's that's why like for me as an NBA fan I'm just like oh I want them to be good. Right. Like, I want them to be, you know, just ones that I tune into every night. But then there's certain nights where I've tuned into a Mavs game and I'm like, oh, God, I can't watch Tim Hardaway jack up another eight shots. Right. Um, and then I have to watch Jalen Brunson run the offense for a bit. Like, no thanks. Too much Jalen Brunson. No. All right, Nir. Well, we're nearing the end here. It wouldn't be a ball cast without a little. He's still playing. And this week, I'm giving co-winners of He's Still Playing with a special 2017 NBA draft feature. You know, as we've talked about, we don't always go for the oldest players in the league. Sometimes we go for young guys that are still stuck around. And this week's co-winners of He's Still Playing are none other than Frank Nilakina of the New York Knicks and Malik Monk of the Charlotte Hornets near. These guys, Nilakina was drafted eighth overall, 2017 draft, you know, just four years ago. Malik Monk drafted 11th overall. Nilakina has played in four games this season, and this is most definitely going to be his last year in the league. I mean, some people have said that some team could revive him, but, I mean, he's playing 10 minutes a game in four games, tons of DMP CDs. Still very tantalizing for Hoops Junkies, but nothing really going on there. Malik Monk... Oh, yeah, go Frankie Smokes. Yeah, well, Frankie Smokes, like, just... I think we've got like three a three game stretch where it's like oh it's tantalizing and it's like oh my god no this guy is not gonna make it no <laughs> um, wow that's crazy we're talking about a guy in 2017 right 2017 and then there's Malik Monk who like I feel like a couple weeks ago had one explosion for like 35 points you're like oh yeah Malik Monk is in the NBA I mean that was my reaction how about you yeah I honestly like the last. Malik Monk moment was when I think uh, didn't he do something to piss off Jordan? <laughs> yeah. um, where I think he like called a t- I, some sort of you know brain fart. But right. outside of that, no relevant moments whatsoever. Totally, it's fourth year. He's averaging twenty one minutes a game, which isn't bad coming off the bench for Charlotte. Uh, but you know, ten points, two and a half boards, two assists. I feel like you know he had a lot of hype coming out of Kentucky, and you know he just again, has not reached the hype, and, you know, he could very well be in Europe or China in a couple of years. Yeah, which is crazy when you think about, like, so eight went Frankie Smokes, then nine was Dennis, Dennis Smith Jr. Right. Um, Another and then you guy. And Malik Monk, like, that stretch could just be in China yeah. a year from now. <laughs> right. Like, that is nuts. Yeah, unbelievable. All right, Nir, well, it was great to get back on the horn with you. Um, another fantastic app. And I will see you again on here in about a month. We got to keep up the uh, the monthly recordings. Yeah, hopefully we get uh, maybe a post All Star game. You know, second half of the schedule is released. Um, you know, we could recap the first half as well as the All Star game, and then kind of start thinking about what the second half will look like. Yes, that would be awesome if there is an All Star game. We'll see what happens with that. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. Thank you, loyal listeners, for tuning in. Until next time, take care, y'all. Peace. Thanks for coming out tonight. You could have been anywhere in the world, but you're here with me. I appreciate that. Uh. H to the Izzo, V to the Izzo. For shizzle, my nizzle used to dribble down in VA. Was herping them in the home of the Turpins. Got it dirty.